Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. You're about to listen to our special bonus episode, Only Three Lads, in conversation with the most extraordinary Terry Draper. If you haven't already, make sure to listen to our main episode where we talk about our top five acoustic songs with Terry, and he brings some great selections to the table. If you're new to the show, be sure to go to facebook.com slash only3lads and like our page, and we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy O3L in conversation with the most extraordinary Terry Draper. Who flew the flying saucers? The chariots of the gods. with the most extraordinary Terry Draper from Klaatu. Welcome back. If you've been here before, if this is your first time, thank you for joining the community. It's the Only Three Lads podcast where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. An exciting episode this week. We have another third lad. And tell us about our third lad this week, Brett. All right. Well, today we welcome to Only Three Lads, a Canadian multi-instrumentalist and songwriters Hall of Fame inductee with an utterly fascinating backstory that we will discuss shortly. With the band Klaatu, he released five albums from 1976 to 1981, including their classic debut, 347 EST, which reached number 32 on the Billboard album charts. Their single... Of course, everybody knows it. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft was not only a prime example of the band's mix of Beatlesque psychedelic whimsy, spacey progressive rock, and ultra-melodic power pop, but was covered by no less a 70s pop culture juggernaut than The Carpenters. But the Terry Draper story doesn't end with Klaatu. Since returning to the record racks in the late 90s, Terry has been incredibly prolific, especially in recent years. Following closely on the heels of 2020's Lost, is a terrific brand new album just released this past Friday, that is, if you're listening to this in real time, entitled The Other Side. The other side is a glorious sight, the grand destination, quite the delight. The other side. So it is our extreme pleasure to welcome our third lad this week. Harry Draper. Thank you for having me. I, I was hoping to be one of the four lads, but I'll go with one of the three lads. I'm good with that. The, the four lads, the four freshmen, the four seasons. Yeah. We're a power trio. I thought I might have stumped you on that one, Brett. <laughs> nope. Well, sometimes we just believe less is more, but we're glad that you're here. And you know a little something about trios. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, a special thanks to Terry's good friend and ours, Ray Paul, for connecting us. When Ray was on our show, Terry, I had a story about the first time I met him, kind of met him. I peed next to him in the men's room at a Paul McCartney concert. I don't have anything quite as weird for you, but we were talking before uh, we hit record that I did meet you many years ago, along with Emmett Rhodes at uh, the Orange County Record Show. 
you signed my copy of 347 EST, so I'd like to thank you for that. I remember that day well. Um, Ray Paul flew me down to L.A. Uh, my first solo release, 15 years after the demise of Klaatu, was called Light Years Later, and it came out uh, in Canada on, on Bullseye Records and in the U.S. on Ray Paul's Permanent Press Records label. And uh, he invited me down to a record show, and uh, lo and behold, I'm sitting beside Emmett Rhodes. And I was uh, in awe, and uh, we spent the afternoon together and had dinner and went back to his house, his studio in the house, and uh, hung out, and, and it was very comfortable. Very nice fella. We're probably going to time hop here a little bit, so I apologize for that. Do you mind if we get the uh, pink elephant out out of the way for our listeners first? No, no, not at all. I, I, yeah, <laughs> not unsuspected. I know. You've talked about this for the past 45 years, I'm sure, in every single interview. But Klaatu, for those who don't know, was unintentionally involved in one of the most fascinating rock and roll stories ever so, Terry, can you talk about uh, the almighty Steve Smith and his role in the rise of Klaatu? Sure. The first Klaatu album came out in August of 1976 uh, to a couple of favorable reviews. Not much. There were some mentions of it sounding a bit Pink Floydy, a bit Beatley. Uh, the Beach Boys were mentioned, too. And uh, it didn't do all that well, I think. My mother bought two copies, so that helped immensely, <laughs> driving up sales. And uh, then in, in uh, February of 1977, this uh, fellow that worked at the Province Rhode Island Journal found a copy. There was the, the newspapers would get records in all the time, and they would just sit there, and if anybody who worked there wanted to take them, they could. And he was sifting through the pile of records one day and came upon this album of ours um, that had no credits listed of any kind or photographs. And uh, he then wrote an article that suggested that we were the Beatles recording under a new name, or certainly some of the Beatles were involved in this. It's funny because we were in England at the time, the three of us, Klaatu, John and Dee and myself, we were at Olympic Studio recording the orchestra. It was the London Philharmonic Orchestra. We were recording them for the uh, Hope album. And uh, somebody told us about this article that proved fairly conclusively that we were the Beatles. <laughs> and uh, the, the session wasn't going well because we had 80-some-odd people playing. And all of the charts weren't matching. So there was wrong notes. There was flats when there should have been naturals. And... It, w it was a bit of a cluster, and so uh, we were very distracted trying to sort this all out with, the, you know, in this expensive studio in another country, and uh, we were told about this uh, during a break, and it was like, well, isn't that nice? They think we're the Beatles. How cute is that? Let's get back to work. And that was the extent of it, until we came home and the uh, the fan was spinning on double time, excrement everywhere. So we didn't know what to do. We recorded in Toronto at a studio called, called Toronto Sound, and we were working with Terry Brown. He was helping produce us and engineering us. He was a fabulous engineer. 
Also, he was working with Rush and some other bands, Max Webster, Dominic Troiano from Mandala, lots of bands, Ian Thomas, another famous Canadian. Anyway, um, Rush was on the rise, and we were witnessing this. And, uh, you know, they couldn't go to the 7-Eleven without having to sign autographs and whatnot. And I think that that kind of notoriety and adulation is great fun when you're 17 or 18. But we were very mature 25-year-olds at this time in our lives, (laughs) or approaching that age at Lightspeed. And uh, we wanted to make music. We wanted to be famous as a band, not individually. And we wanted to be fabulously wealthy, but we didn't want to have to deal with public life. I mean, I I think Brad Pitt's life must be a piece of shit. (laughs) He can't go anywhere. He can't do anything without a bodyguard. And so uh, we, we decided to put no pictures and no names and our, our phrase for the, back in the day was, let the music speak for itself. And it, this is 1977. We're in the middle of the disco era. And uh, photos of bands that you see, like Aerosmith and other bands, they all have scarves on and their hair blowing with the fans and everything. And it's a world of hype. Glam rock is at its height. And there seemed to be, in the music business, uh, disco included, there seemed to be a lot of hype, a lot of interesting bios, but not a lot of substantial music being made. Right. And here we are lost in, a, in an area of, of psychedelia, Beatlesque psychedelia, in the middle of the disco era. So it was a bit of a struggle, but... Uh, We decided to stick to our guns. We didn't have a manager, which was a bit of a problem, I think. We decided to, you know what, we're not going to come out of the closet, as it were, and just say, hey, look at us, we're just three schmucks from Toronto, you know. For good or bad, we uh, stayed the course and kept our anonymity. And I must confess, the anonymity worked extremely well. Here we are 45 years later, no one knows who I am. And I'm okay with that. Oh, just wait till after this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Terry, talk about this. Because you said your mom bought two copies of that first album, but then you came home, you stuck to your guns, uh, you didn't tell any lies, you just, you know, let the music speak for itself, and all of a sudden, you're number 32 on the charts because of this story that's going around. I mean, it must have been a thrill to watch your album sales go through the roof. At one point, we were selling 20,000 every day in the U.S. Wow. Every record plant, Capital Capital Records, every record plant that they owned in America was pressing the first Clatu album. This is what I was told back in the day by reputable people at Capital Records and whatnot. And yeah, it was quite a ride. I remember Capital was fighting this Beatle rumor. And so they took out a full-page ad in Billboard magazine that said, Clatu is Clatu. I mean, it's like, come on, throw some more gas on the fire. Anyway, um, they were quite happy that we were content to, uh, to remain anonymous. They were selling Beatle records, or a lot of people thought it was. Of course, you know, if you listen to it, it doesn't sound like the Beatles to me. Sub Rosa Subway does, sure. We tried to make that song sound like it's all too much with that wild yes. fade out and the subway goes by and the chanting and all that Brahmsian tunes, you know. Underground. Underground. 
But songs like um, like uh, Little Neutrino, that sounds more like Pink Floyd to me. Even spacier than Pink Floyd if there's such a thing. And True Life Hero, True Life Hero sounds like uh, just down and dirty rock and roll, like rock and roll. Bachman Turner Overdrive or something, you know? And Dr. Marvelo, okay, yeah, that goes back to being a little bit of that beetle thing. But California Jam. John wrote that as a tribute to uh, all the West Coast bands of, of California. The Mamas and the Papas, the Association, uh, the Beach Boys, of course. You know, those kinds of bands with their fabulous harmonies and vocals, Sonny and Cher even. And they, they, it's what's interesting about that song is the original title of it was uh, The Great San Andreas Misfortune of 1983. Ooh. Yeah, that's a little-known fact. That was a little pretentious and a little long. And you, when you put a date on it, you sure date something. It's way past 1983, and the San Andreas Fault hasn't exploded yet. California's on my mind. Sunset in the California's on my At the time uh, we were making this, there was a big Woodstock kind of concert thingy going on in California called California Jam. So we said, you know what, let's use that California Jam because that's what we're doing. We're taking all of these bands that we love and making our own new confection and concoction from yeah. what they did. It was, it's just a tribute. Doesn't sound like the Beatles to me, but hey, you know, the whole world wanted the Beatles to get back together in the mid-70s. I was one of them. Well, and capital executives surely must have smelled the dollars and weren't exactly rushing to dispel the rumors, right? Here's the deal, Brett. We made the deal. Frank Davies, who owned Daffodil Records that had signed us in Canada, he made the deal with America and the world, with EMI, with Rupert Perry, who was an old friend of his. And the deal was, here's the record. It's finished. Here's the artwork. It's finished. You will not get to meet the band, nor learn their names, or see photographs of them. Hmm. That's the deal. Take it or leave it. And Rupert said, okay, the music sounds great. Um, yeah, where do I sign? And then for the next year, Rupert Perry had to field phone calls as the president of EMI at Capital in L.A. He had to field phone calls and tell people that he did not know who was in the band, because he did not know. Legitimately. He legitimately yeah. did not know when everybody's, yeah, come on, Rupert. You sign this band, you don't know who's in the band? Give me a break. True talk story. about the stars aligning just to make this story even bigger and even more controversy or more conspiracy theory just by, you know, the guy, I don't know who they are. He's telling the truth, but it sounds like he's just egging that fire. Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's the way it went down. And uh, as it turned out, there was some... Uh, DJ in Washington, D.C., uh, who went across the street to the, the Library of Congress and looked up the copyrights and found out that uh, Lennon and McCartney's name didn't appear anywhere. 
on the copyright ownership of any of these songs. Shock horror. <laughs> yes, and so that was the bursting of the balloon. And uh, every record the Clatu put out sold uh, less than its predecessor. Well, it seems funny now because people, myself included, are so analytical about the Beatles. So it seems odd nowadays that anybody could mistake it for the Beatles. But that being said, front to back, it's a brilliant album that's brimming with at least a Beatlesque sense of experimentation. And it's obvious that you guys had great respect and admiration for the Beatles. So even though it ended up being kind of a nuisance, I'm sure it had to be for a, a new band coming out an incredible compliment, right? Doesn't get any better. Yeah. Doesn't get any better for us, uh, having grown up in the 60s, being Beatle fans and whatnot. Um, you know, I had a great record collection before the Beatles came along. I had uh, all of the uh, Phil Spector girl groups on 45 mm -hmm. and the Four Seasons and the Beach Boys. Uh, Shutdown was my favorite. I thought that was a great record. Oh, yeah. Two and a half minutes of Go, Go, Go. And then I had like Gene Pitney's records and and uh, and, and uh, who else? The Bobbies. There was Bobby Vinton, Bobby Rydell, Bobby Curtola, Bobby, Bobby v. v. There was a pile of Bobbies. <laughs> so I had a, a large forty-five collection, and I was a, a big fan. In fact, on my tenth birthday, my uncle gave me my first LP I owned, which was Roy Orbison's Greatest Hits. Ooh. And yeah, that's still I'm still a big fan of Roy to this day. But uh, when the Beatles came along and we all watched them on Ed Sullivan, I said to myself, you know, maybe just instead of loving music and collecting records, maybe I could actually play music. And I bought some drumsticks. A couple of years mm. later, I got a set of drums. Moved into Yorkville in the 60s, late 60s. Uh, Yorkville in Toronto was the counterpart of Haight-Ashbury. So I moved into Yorkville and put the drums away and uh, borrowed a 12-string Kent guitar. Luckily, it only had six strings on it. That was hard enough to tune six, never mind 12. <laughs> and taught myself to play guitar. And a year later, too, bought a piano and uh, never looked back. I, I knew what I wanted to do at a very early age. That's incredible. So some of the bands that you were in in the 60s, are there recordings that survive? No, not really. The bands weren't very good. We didn't know how to play our instruments very well. But we had great names. Uh, one of them was JP and the Five Good Reasons. <laughs> nice. We had a band called The Tracks, T-R-A-X. And I think we may have been the first clone band in the world because we only played songs by the animals. So we were the Animal hmm. Tracks. Tribute band, huh? And then we had a band, uh, me and my buddy Virgil. We've been in a bunch of bands. We're still good friends to this day. We had a band called The Innocence of Virgil Scott. Very psychedelic band name. Yeah, and then we uh, we used to start that, that our start our first set every night with the theme from Dragnet. You remember? And it was then one of the guys would introduce Virgil and say that we're only here to protect the innocents. <laughs> and we'd go off into some, you know, some R&B tune or something like Green Onions or God knows what. It was great fun. And was it, we had a band called the Kingdom Show Band. Brandy and Scotch in the Kingdom Show Band with two drummers. And we wore suits and did, you know, Midnight Hour and Hold On, I'm Coming and uh, all, all that kind of stuff. And... And I stopped doing that and, and uh, moved into to the village and, and started listening to the Moody Blues. 
and uh, Steppenwolf, and the list goes on and on. And then how did you fall in with Klaatu? Because John and Dee had already started the band before you joined, correct? That's the truth of the matter. The fact is that John and I were in the Five Good Reasons together. We were in the tracks together. And uh, in the early 1970s, uh, John and Dee and I had a band called Mud Cow. In the late 60s, John and I started writing together because I had now learned to play guitar, or I was in the process of learning to play guitar. So we started writing songs together and wanted to put a band together. And uh, we had auditions for various guitar players, and it was it, they were disasters. And I said, you know what? I remember when I was in The Innocence of Virgil Scott, I remember there was another band on the same uh, roster as us, picked up by the same booking agent. They were called the Polychromatic Experiment. And we met them at a battle of bands on May 4th, 1968. And uh, D was the guitar player in that band. And I told John, I said, you know, I'm, this guy is a really good guitar player. Let's see if I can hunt him down. And maybe he'll join the band. So we had a meeting with D and played him their demos because we wanted to do a band that was all originals. And D joined the band. And we had a fourth member, a keyboard player, Jamie Bridgman. We called the band Mud Cow. I love 60s band names. Yeah, well, that was why I asked Wallace Chuck. I said, well, why, why, do, why do you want to call the band Mud Cow? He said, I had a dream. And we were in a band called Mud Cow. All right, good enough for me. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, in Came fact, Mud Cow pie. played uh, some of the Clatu songs. We used to play Dear Christine and uh, a California jam, Heinous of Uranus. Mm. Back then, it was Anus of Uranus. Before it became Anus of Uranus. Anyway, yeah, I remember the day Mudcow died. We were playing at the Trenton Hotel in Trenton, Ontario, down by Kingston, a couple hours east of Toronto. And back in those days, you had to play uh, six nights, as well as a Saturday afternoon matinee, and we lived in the dorm up at the top of the hotel. It wasn't pretty, but we, we, you know, kept the band together. Uh, plus, we had to learn some cover tunes in order to get bar gigs. So we were playing Jumpin' Jack Flash and Hold Your Head Up by Argent. I love that song. We had to play Proud Mary, something I'm not particularly proud of. Mm -hmm. And I remember that, that Saturday afternoon, we got called into a meeting in uh, the dressing room of Misty the Stripper. And she was going over our set list and advising us on which songs uh, in our repertoire she was going to undress to that afternoon. Because we shared the bill uh, in the matinee on Saturday afternoon with Misty the Stripper. Wow. And the meeting finished and we went back upstairs and Dee said, uh, that's it, I'm done. After tonight, I'm done. I, I don't want to do this bar thing anymore. I quit the bands in the bars in the 60s for the... The same reason I'm quitting today. I am done. And then uh, a couple of years later, Wallace Chuck ran into Terry Brown, got D involved. They put a single out, and they were working with session drummers, and it wasn't quite working out. It was hit and miss with session drummers, you know. And so John called me up and said, hey, maybe uh, you want to uh, come on over to the studio. So it was the reincarnation of Mud Cow under a new name with one member less so to speak. Uh -huh. And at the peak of Clat 2, what's the one thing that you remember 
from the band? I mean, when you guys were out, maybe pushing that first album or that when all the craziness was going on with people thinking that you're the Beatles, what's one of probably the craziest moment you could remember? Craziest moment was uh, we were recording the rocket ships in the fade out of Little Neutrino. And uh, I had this idea to make the rocket ships with a, a, a mallets rolling on a cymbal. So I was out in the studio playing the mallets on the cymbal so you get While I was doing that, John and Dee were in the control room changing the pitch of the 24-track machine using the very speed and speeding the machine up and slowing it down so that the music would go like that. So that when we played it back at normal speed, my cymbal rolls are now doing They're going up and down, and, and, and that's how we made the rocket ships. Well, while we were in the process of doing this, Mick Jagger walked into the control room. He was there to uh, look at booking the studio, block booking it for a month, so that the Rolling Stones could rehearse for their El Macombo gig in 1975, I think. 70, might have been 76. I think it was 75. Anyway, he walked in while we were doing that, and we stopped what we were doing, and, and uh, he heard a, a few minutes of it and got introduced to him. He stuck around for about 10 minutes, and then he left, and we went back to being psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the, uh, the strangest thing about the meeting was that I figured he was you know six foot eleven. He's like five foot six. Guy's a midget. Wow. Hey now, wait a second. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Greg. <laughs> uh, they always seem larger than life, though, don't they? They do. You know, I've seen the Stones uh, half a dozen times live. I saw them when Satisfaction was number one back in 65 wow and uh he is a commanding presence when he sings uh, please allow me to introduce myself whoa look out satan's in the room well have you seen recently that he was at some bar and nobody noticed he was sitting there drinking a beer kind of standing there and one of his friends was with them and they took a picture and put that on social media and nobody even really noticed him had a hat on just drinking a beer at some bar cool it's probably tough for him to do exactly exactly and just to let you guys know i want to hear what your favorite rolling stone song is mine is painted black yeah painted black's a good one what a fabulous lyric i mean talk about having a bad day huh you want the whole world painted black he must have really loved that girl yeah you know i have a couple of stones favorites uh she's a rainbow boy that one's right up at the top of my list when everybody was touting the Beatles' first album and listening to She Loves You, uh, I was listening to the Rolling Stones. And I thought that the Beatles, they were too cute. They were too, I want to hold your hand. Give me a break. Mick Jagger singing about, <laughs> I want to be a king bee, honey. I'm going to buzz around a while. Yeah. And the, the, the Stones were very sensual. Um, satisfaction. I mean, my goodness, you know. The, so I, I was a big Stones fan early in the day. Time is on my side. Heart, uh, Heart of Stone. God, there's so many, so many. 19th Nervous Breakdown, it's all over now. I could go on and on. I was going to say She's a Rainbow, too. I'm a big Satanic Majesties fan. I'm probably 
alone in that, but I love uh, that. I love 2000 Light Years from Home. Great song. Yeah, the, the Aftermath album. I'm a big fan of Between the Buttons, Connection. I mean, Yesterday's Papers. I love kind of that 60, probably 65 to 68 period of the Stones. Brian Jones at his best. Yes, absolutely. All right, Terry, we're talking about music that's over 50 years old. Let's talk about your music that's coming out now. Uh, how has it changed? How has your approach to music has changed since Clateau? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Greg, because <laughs> it hasn't changed all that much. <laughs> well, perfect. That's like ACDC. They haven't changed a whole lot, and everyone still loves them since Back in Black. There was something about the Clateau formula that still works for me today. It's being able to do a variety of different kinds of music. Um, well, that's probably because I'm not part of the mu music business. I quit the music business in 1982 when the world turned its back on Klaatu. I couldn't believe that five years after we were rumored to be the Beatles, we couldn't get a record deal and, and couldn't get a gig. And uh, so when the band broke up, I said, that's it. I went back to construction. I'd had a roofing business through all through the Klaatu thing because we never played live. So we were always living on the edge never had any money so I had a roofing business and um, I quit that at some point to, when Klaatu started playing live and you know getting going and everything but when it was over I said enough of that I'm gonna go back to having a life uh, making a decent living working hard uh, traveling big house you know all that stuff that mm -hmm. you can't do when you're in a rock band unless you get all, all three of the uh, lucky charms in a row you know like Vegas so um, it was a long time before I... I never stopped making music, though. I had a tape recorder, I had an 8-track and a, a studio, and I was writing and recording all the time. Never stopped making music. I just quit the music business. And so when I decided to start putting out my own stuff, um, I, there was nobody telling me what to do, what I could do, what what was good, what wasn't, what sold, what didn't. Uh, there are no parameters for me. My last album, not the new one, the previous one, Lost, has a song on it called uh, The Sultan's Dream that is done in, a, in an Ottoman, a Middle Eastern kind of feel. Uh, marching war drums and trumpets uh, about the fall of Constantinople. So that was fun. Ancestors of descendants of I do yeah. like history, and so I, I'm, I, I have the I have the luxury of doing whatever I, I want to do. And Klaatu had that luxury too. On the same album with a song like Mr. Manson, where we slowed this tape right down in the middle of the song and had the voice of Adolf Hitler appear. On that same album, singing about Mr. Manson, a song that Dee wrote, uh, Wallace Chuck wrote probably his best song, in my opinion, A Routine Day, which is a very Gilbert O'Sullivan kind of thing. So that 
That kind of juxtaposition really works for me and it allows me to, to continue to, to create. Uh, my axiom in this day and age is that if I can amuse myself, there's a good chance I can amuse others. Terry, who are some of the more modern bands that maybe that you say that's a good band or maybe you listen to now? Um, that was part of my problem of, of, of anticipating talking to you two guys that I haven't really listened to the radio or music in the last 30 years. I kind of just do what I'm doing. I'm, I'm always in the studio and if I'm not, I'm working on something and my head's full of, uh, of my own stuff. It, you know, I got melodies and lyrics flying around and stuff, and I don't have, you know, people, some of my friends say, hey, Drapes, you gotta check out Jellyfish. And it's like, I'll hear, you know, a song, and it's like, yeah, that's okay, yeah, 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 okay, those guys must have listened to us back in the day, or something like that, you know, <laughs> and there's somebody sent me Licorice Quartet the other day, and I listened to one of their songs, and Oh, yeah. Okay, that's cool. I get it. Well, they're related to jellyfish, so somebody's trying to push you towards jellyfish. Yeah. Anyway, I'm just generally <laughs> in my own head, living around in there. There's no room for anybody else. I think you know to leave my home. I'll find I'm better alone. I don't even listen to my old Moody Blues albums very often anymore. It's kind of sad. When I stop uh, putting out records every year, I think I'll go back and have a have a good sit down with my turntable and uh, maybe drop some acid and listen to Lost Chord. Hey, there you yeah, go. It's got to have a plan. Just That's kidding. Good, Just like kidding. <laughs> Sounds like a good idea. We don't condone that here, but you know. Okay. Me uh, neither. Yeah, because I was going to ask after all these years. You know, what drives you? Because you are so prolific, and I think you just gave a good answer to that, is that you always have these ideas in your head, and they're they're all yours. You you don't have this outside influence that creeps in. Or- you know what, Brett? I was watching a, a documentary a couple of years ago on Queen Victoria and the whole uh, British domination of the planet. And I thought, you know, it's really interesting. So I sat down with the started writing this thing, and uh, it was the song's called "The Sun Never Sets on the British Empire." So in the verses, I wanted to do this little madrigal kind of, uh, you know, like music, like uh, minstrels would make, like they did in the Holy Grail. And, and, and I'm a big Monty Python fan, so I had that kind of medieval music. And I was singing over top of it, and it wasn't working. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to try. Uh, I'm going to try just spoken word. And that was better, but it still wasn't working. So I, I reached out to a friend who does voices, different types of voices for a living, and uh, I played it for him. And he said, well, maybe a young Winston Churchill. I said, bingo, give me that. So he read the lyrics uh, with, with a, a voice similar to a young Winston Churchill and I drop them into the song and then when the chorus comes I kind of sing it sort of like a Kinks, Hollies kind of yeah. thing. It was a lot of fun to put that together and talk about the sun never setting on the British Empire and its heydays in the late 1800s. The sun never sets on the British Empire. The Union Jack unfold. Quarter of the world. The 
sun never sets on the British Empire. So it's a little bit of a history lesson, and I was having some fun at the same time. I don't think Capitol Records would have let me put that on the album. Probably not. If there was a Capitol Records. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is now. Now record labels are just basically brand names. Universal. Yeah, Universal. Owns everything. So the new album, The Other Side, to me, it seems to develop further some of the themes you explored on their predecessors, Sunset on Mars and Lost. Do you see your music with a sense of continuity, I guess? Uh, no. No, I, I don't. I don't give it a lot of thought, you know. Um, okay. I I, uh, I write. I have these ideas, and I write these little melodies and chord structures and lyrics and stuff. I almost always start with a, a lyric. If I don't know what I'm singing about, then how can the music make any sense? How can it take you there? I want you to hear any particular song of mine and know what I'm singing about before I open my mouth, or at least have a rough idea. That's the goal for me: is to marry the lyric and the music together as good as possible that's terrible english isn't it we should edit that. that's all right <laughs> okay we'll let it slide <laughs> so i have devised a plan i'll be a happy man and i'll wear a smile for all my friends today it's so hard it's But, uh, so that's the that's the goal of the whole thing. So I don't think a lot about well, the last album and where this one's going. I just do stuff. And so writing the song, creating the, those lyrics and, and some chords and some melodies, I call that the cake. And then when the cake is finished or pretty much finished and looking like a cake, I take it down into the studio and now I start now the fun begins because I'm putting the icing on the cake. And that's all the fun for me, you know. Am I going to put Mellotron on this one? Well, a better question is, am I going to use Mellotron flutes or strings? Because <laughs> Mellotron's my favorite instrument to still to this day. I'm with you. And so, and then now I, I, I like doing the bass line because you can have, there's such freedom doing the bass line. You can go anywhere and do anything. And, and just, you know, how the thing, how the song shapes up. There's a, a new song on, on uh, the other side called Marie and Me. I wrote about uh, a couple of years ago, Anne and I and our, our two sons, we all met in Rome and toured around Italy for a while. And one of the places we ended up was the Amalfi Coast and went out to the island of Capri. So I wrote this song called Marie and Me about how she loves Capri and she's waiting there for me and she's going to turn the light on in the lighthouse so I can find my way out and get to her. She waits patiently for me She said she'd leave the light on so I would find my way She said and uh, because it was uh, in Italy and it's very romantic, I put the song in 3-4 time, so it waltzes, and the main instrument is an accordion. So I tried to make it feel street. But when I say street, yeah. I'm talking about, uh, you know, downtown uh, Italy. You know, so yeah, you're not going hip-hop. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going hip-hop. No. <laughs> and so that was a great... It, it, that was just so much fun for me to, to, to make this song 
uh, be as, as as good as it can be, as to manifest itself, to find the instruments that make it sing. So yeah. that's part of the thing. And so that's why the songs are different all the time. And uh, I've had a couple of people interview and, and review already and uh, have said that they think this is my best work yet. And they said that about the last album and the one before. And you know what? That really warms my heart because I like to think I'm getting better at this. You know, I've been screwing around with a tape deck of some nature and, and musical instruments for over 50 years. I'm finally starting to get the hang of this, you know? <laughs> and it's nice to know that I'm getting better. There's a, a great uh, story about some cellist, and I can't remember who it is, but he's being interviewed. And uh, the, he's 90 years old, and the, and the interviewer says, so you rehearse every day? He says, yes, of course I rehearse every day. He says, why would you rehearse every day? You're 90 years old. And the cellist says, "I, well, I think I'm making progress. <laughs> that's a great line. And, and that says it all, you know. The sun and I I'm making progress. I'm getting better at this, and it's a joy. And it's and I'm always experimenting, using backwards things and and different stuff. And you know, depending on the song, I try to be honest to the song and do what it wants me to. It's a great album, so thank you for that. And can you let everybody know where they can find it? Huh. Yeah, that's a real tough one. Um, the best place to get it is TerryDraper.com. How hard is that? And I'm also distributed uh, by MVD in America. So somebody sent me a, a message last week and said, Hey, I, I pre-ordered your new album from Target. And it was like, what? You can get my CD at Target? Now that's cool. That is cool. Well, yeah, there's no record stores hardly anymore. So, no. you know, being able to get it, I guess they had to order it through Target. But I thought, well, that's good. That's a good distributor then. Yeah. Calling Occupants, of course, is the song that you're best known for, we'll say. Both your original and the Carpenters cover. So I just have a question. Did, did you know the Carpenters or did they uh, reach out to you to, to cover the song? How did that come about? No. Um, the story goes, I never met the Carpenters, never spoke to anyone. I wish I had have met Karen. I would have thanked her profusely. Uh, the story goes that um, their guitar player... Tony Pagrosi, I don't know if I got that right. Somebody Google that for me. Not you guys, somebody out there. Apparently, he brought our album in to play it for Richard and Karen because they were uh, real Beatle freaks. One of the things I've heard of Richard mention is the three Bs, and he's not talking about Bach, Beethoven, and uh, Brahms. He's talking about the Beach Boys, Bacharach, and the Beatles. So he was a big Beatle freak, and uh, uh, as luck would have it, Frank Davies, who I mentioned earlier, who cut the deal for us with, with Capital and, and was our label owner in Canada, he met them at a NAMM show in Vegas, and uh, Frank tells the story that he sat with them in their hotel room while they regaled him singing the whole album to him 
uh, Karen and Richard sang the whole album, our first album, to, wow. to Frank. And Frank came home with three acetates, uh, soft cuts, you know, like records in a white mm-hmm. vanilla envelope. That uh, degrade after a couple of plays? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Karen sent Frank home with three of those, one for each of us for their new album, Passage, that Calling Occupants is on. And mine's hanging on the wall right there. You can't see it. It's behind me over there. And it's uh, Karen has written on it, says, Dear Clatu, we've been observing your group. And her and uh, Richard signed it. That is one of my prized uh, possessions. Um, and that, that's, you know, I mean, that's the pinnacle of my musical career, is having Karen sing a song I co-wrote. Doesn't get any better. Calling occupants of interplanetary craft. It doesn't. One of the great voices of all time. That's like the quintessential female voice of all time, you know? There's some others. I'm a big Streisand fan. I love Bette Midler. But, you know, Karen says purity. The purity and innocence of her voice. Uh, And I think they did a great job recording our song. They were rather faithful to our arrangement. Uh, Although they went off in the middle part with the flutes and the thing, and I really dig that. But, uh, yeah, that's a, a special moment in time. And Terry, Excellent. his name is Tony Peluso. Peluso, thank you. You're welcome. Good Googling skills, Greg. I've got to be good at something. It might as well be that. <laughs> what, what is the one band you played with that you are just so thrilled that you still have that memory? Jeez, I guess I would be glad to. I mean, we, we did some good work. Uh, we put out five records. I like most of them. Uh, we played live for nine months after the uh, completion of our fifth and final album, Magentalane. And that was okay for a while. Um, playing live, being on the road sucks. I mean, it's just hurry up and wait. You go do a sound check at four in the afternoon, wait around till 9.30 or something to go and play, and then go back to the hotel room or get in a Winnebago and drive to the next town in the dead of winter in Canada. No, that's not fun. But uh, that, that hour and a half on stage, well, that's a bit of a blast. Uh, and everybody expected us to be this uh, wimpy little band, just come out and play uh, stuff. But as luck would have it, um, uh, some friends of mine had a band called Max Webster that was, they liked to do some Zappa type stuff and, and very proficient musicians and, and uh, quite powerful. Well, their band had just broken up as I was uh, asked to put a band, a live band together for Clatu. And so I commandeered the bass player and the drummer and the keyboard player from Max Webster. And John and Dee and I were all out front with a variety of keyboards and guitars singing and playing and, you know, doing uh, all of that. And we had this rocking tough nut band behind us so when we played live we chose all of our our um heavier songs not that clan 2 was that heavier heavier anything but uh, one of these songs on the uh, sir army suit album is called older and uh it's quite quite uh it rocks i, I was always hoping black sabbath would have covered it and uh, Ozzy was around when we made that record. He, uh, Black Sabbath had booked the studio in Toronto, and they had room A and we had room B. So uh, Dee and I were hanging out on the night shift with Ozzy and uh, Black Sabbath for about a month. And uh, 
Boy, that was some interesting times. Crazy times. <laughs> well, it's not too late, Ozzy, if you're listening to this. I don't think he would remember us, to be honest. He sent, and this is a great little story, he sent a limo up to Canada for, for D and I to come down and see the Black Sabbath play uh, in Niagara Falls, New York. And uh, there, we came into the arena and there was some band doing cover tunes on mm. stage and uh, they sounded pretty good. And we get backstage and Ozzy's having a fit. Uh, he says, "We got this opening act. We got they suck. We got to get rid of them. They're awful. The singer's terrible. They they're awful. We got to get them off of the stage." Well, they were called Van Halen. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and they were doing "Pretty Woman" and "You Really Got Me" and I don't know what else. But uh, they were they, they were blowing Sabbath off the stage every night, and wow. Ozzy was concerned. That was the last time yeah. I saw Ozzy. Anyway. Um, yeah, interesting. But that's a great story. Yeah, what well, we were back, back, hanging out with him for a month. The day we met him was in the uh, the little lounge area in the recording studio, you know, where the fridge and the stove and all that is. And we get introduced to him, and he says, "So, would you like a beer?" And it's yeah, sure, let's have a beer. He opened the fridge up, and you couldn't have squeezed a pickle in this fridge because <laughs> it was full of Newcastle Brown Pale Ale. <laughs> well, you only had one choice then. And I drank Newcastle Brown for quite a few years after that. When I went to a pub, if it was on tap, uh, it was my beer of choice for many years. Always, uh, you know, cheers, Ozzy. And uh, down it went. (laughs) Quite a character. I can only imagine what it's like to be around him, especially in that time of Black Sabbath. Okay, next week we are going to talk about our top five albums of 1987. I think Terry would be lost on this one. I had one son a year old and another one uh, in the oven. Wow. I was busy. Memories. You were <laughs> busy. Yeah, so. that, that will keep you busy. Running a business and starting a family. That must yeah. have been a fun time. And making music. And making, yeah, I was making music. I was uh, putzing around. I was actually working with uh, um, a couple of different women at the time. One girl wanted to be... Uh, What's her name from the Arrhythmics? Annie Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox, thank you. She wanted to be Annie Lennox, and she wanted me to be uh, Mr. Stewart. So we we did a couple of of, uh, Europop, heavy synthesizer-type things. And I was working with another girl. Uh, She wanted to be Pat Benatar. And I was writing the songs and recording them and and, uh, trying to be in that genre and... Uh, we had some oh. fun. I remember going to see one of my favorite bands at the time. Uh, what were they called? They were called Culture Club. Culture Club. Boy George. George yes. I have a good Boy George story. Yeah? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Okay, here we go. Um, Dee was working uh, as an engineer at Air London in England, running the MIDI room for George Martin. And uh, some TV show in Germany wanted Klaatu to record this song they had for the TV show. So all expenses paid, they flew John and I over to England. 
and we stayed by the uh, the Hyde Park there, and recorded at, uh, at Air London, and I met George Martin. That was a big thrill. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I was sitting in the lounge, which was upstairs in in the studio, and Boy George came up the stairs. He was in the building too. I uh, yeah, obviously. And I got up and started walking across the room to introduce myself and say thank you, because uh, I thought I just thought he was great. I just loved that that uh, cheesy reggae thing they were doing. <laughs> and when he got to the top of the stairs, he made a quick left turn and went into the girls' room. So I went and sat back down and said, "I'll meet him another time." I never did meet him. And you never did. No. See, he was oh. ahead of his time. It was just kind of weird. He had a lot of makeup yeah. on. Some things never change. But uh, you know what we call Boy George in Canada? Uh, <laughs> George Boy. George, George Boy. <laughs> well, Terry, we want to thank you for joining us this week on the Only Three Lads podcast. Once again, new music coming out for you. How do we get a hold of it? Uh, the other side is live. It dropped on Friday. Is that what we're supposed to say? It yes. dropped? Yeah, that's pretty good. It hip. dropped. It's called The Other Side. It's available at www.terrydraper.com. And uh, there's 13 songs on it. I'm sure that any one of you will at least find one you can tolerate. Well, we love it. Soldiers of misfortune Waging And uh, uh, it's been fun being on your show. And my my list was uh, highly suspect, but uh, I had oh, fun. Fantastic! I had fun forcing it on you, nonetheless. We appreciate that, and we thank you for all the homework. I can't wait to go through what I have to listen to now. <laughs> Thanks, guys. This has been a fun. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm It'll... actually gonna go and listen to these songs. And just remember, everyone, on the O3L Interplanetary Craft, we are your friends. And on that note, we will wave hello and say goodbye. Cheers. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.